Hey everyone, this is Ben with the 26th episode of the Defend Your Ground podcast. In our previous episode, we started diving into this new BLM rule that's being proposed that will allow the BLM to essentially create conservation leases, among a few other things. Uh, This is a rule where they're trying to, what they claim is they're trying to prioritize or raise up conservation as a use on public land, as something they should manage better as part of their multiple use mandate. And that's where they're coming from. As we've dug into this, there are a lot of big problems with it. Uh, We're starting to hear from across the board, the stakeholders in the public land system or of folks that are coming out against this. And so we wanted to just do a second episode on it. This is going to be a big deal. If you're not paying attention to this and you use public land, it's going to impact your ability to access or use public land in the future if you don't influence what this becomes or ideally i think this rule should be withdrawn and so i want to start off the episode today talking about what i think are four major problems with the rule i consider these to be the unifying principles that anyone who opposes this rule should agree with and our plan is to draft a letter that basically articulates these principles and our hope is that all the organizations and groups and stakeholder interests so recreation organizations, all of our uh, Jeep clubs and OHV organizations, uh, cattlemen's associations, associations of counties. There's a whole bunch of organizations and NGOs and institutions that have a stakeholding interest in the public land system. We want everybody to sign a letter and send a letter to the, uh, the Bureau of Land Management basically saying, we, the undersigned groups, all oppose this rule for these reasons. Blue Ribbon Coalition will still send in a separate comment with a lot more detail and reasons why we also oppose this separately as our own interests are involved. But we do want everybody unifying around some common principles that it, that just makes this bad across the board. And so the first principle I want to talk about here, why this rule is bad, is that I do not believe that the Bureau of Land Management has the authority to do this under FLIPMA. It doesn't matter whether I believe that or not. That's a question that will likely only be ultimately determined by a court of law. This is a, an, a dimension of law that's been kind of opened wide. That's been open. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. I'm going to have to revise. This is a field of law that's been widely open to new interpretations because of recent Supreme Court decisions. Uh, The Supreme Court is carefully scrutinizing the boundaries of administrative authority in agencies like the BLM, and they're paying close attention to whether or not the statutes that authorize what they're doing actually tell them they can do what they want to do. The law they're deriving this from is FLIPMA, the Federal Land Policy Management Act. It was passed in 1976. What the BLM is essentially saying is since 1976, there's been this hidden authority in this law that nobody has recognized, except for some really clever administrators in the Biden administration have discovered this new authority that's been hidden there all along in FLIPMA for the BLM to come and prioritize conservation on public land to create a whole new program 
selling and administering conservation leases. And they've basically created this out of administrative thin air. The statutory authorization for this does not exist in FLIPMA. There is nowhere in FLIPMA that discusses the BLM creating conservation leases. And this broad overreach will be challenged. There are a lot of questions about whether they are doing this the right way. You read the way they write about this and they they know they're on thin ice. They're stating, oh, no, no, our authority's broad. There's one case in the Court of Appeals that says we do have broad authority and that's not enough, folks. This is a huge overreach and I expect you're gonna see a big backlash to it just because of that. So that's principle number one. They don't have authority to do it. They should withdraw the rule for that reason alone. Number two is that it is not going to work primarily because it doesn't have any statutory basis. They're making it up as they go. This hasn't gone through the political pressure cooker of a policy that's been scrutinized and passed through Congress where different constituencies are able to weigh in and shape the, the language of a legislative proposal and design something like a conservation lease system that has broad public buy-in and support. That process does fine tune a policy. When you have an administrator just make it up out of thin air and, and magically find authority they don't have in an existing statute, you become vulnerable to all kinds of blind spots. This isn't going to work. They haven't done the homework to figure out what all those blind spots are. They haven't pushed this through a legitimate political process. And this open public comment period Administrative Procedure Act stuff is not enough. It's not going to cut it. We're not looking at this in a in a big enough of a picture. And but I know for a fact that it won't work because I've seen this tried before under current regulatory provisions. Um, as a consultant, I've looked at instances where some of the same actors, I mean, if you read the proposed rule, they want to give uh, conservation groups and NGOs, tribes, potentially like state and local governments, just other entities, the ability to come in and buy a conservation lease and then work through the terms of that lease to accomplish conservation goals on BLM land. So they're basically co-managing BLM land with the BLM and paying usually what will probably turn into being the highest bidder type environment for the right to do that. Um, I'm aware of instances where that has happened. Uh, we have seen in Utah where an organization called the Grand Canyon Trust has acquired a grazing lease, a grazing permit. So a lease on BLM land. Grazing leases have terms and conditions that you have to comply with or the, gra the grazing lease becomes invalid. And usually you'll see an agency move to terminate that lease if you're out of compliance with the lease. And so the Grand Canyon Trust acquired a grazing lease. Um, and we've seen them do that in various parts of Utah. And what is a common Part of that story, once they acquire the lease, is they do not follow the terms of the grazing lease. And when other ranchers in the community press the BLM to uphold the terms of that grazing lease, the BLM throws up their hands and says, oh, we can't do anything, or, oh, we're working with them. And they find some way to string them along and protect them from the enforcement mechanisms that should cause those leases to be canceled. We've also seen that same organization work with a tribe who's gotten a grazing lease. 
And then they enter into a memorandum of understanding with the tribe to essentially manage that grazing lease towards a preferred conservation outcome, not a preferred grazing outcome. So they're essentially creating a conservation lease out of a grazing lease. The memorandum of understanding also had terms of conditions that they were agreeing to comply with along with the federal agency. In this case, it was the Forest Service. And what happened afterwards? No compliance at all. They did not comply with a single line of that memorandum of understanding. There are years and years of letters from the Forest Service telling these entities to comply with their terms and conditions of the leases or they would cancel the leases but then they never actually pulled the trigger of enforcement to do it. Uh, I wrote a letter to Sonny Perdue, who was the Department of Agriculture Secretary under President Trump, asking him why. What would it take to actually enforce the terms and conditions of this grazing lease against these entities that were 100% out, out of compliance? Years and years of documentation of non-compliance. Why couldn't they cancel that lease and reopen that lease up for another grazing permittee to acquire? And let me read you what, it wasn't Sonny Perdue that answered me. Um, it was one of his deputies. So this was out of the Washington DC office of the highest levels of the Forest Service. And because one of the permittees in question here was a tribe, they said the Ute Mountain Ute tribe is a federally recognized and as such is entitled to a nation to nation trust relationship with the United States government. The rights, duties and obligations that make up the trust relationship generally exist only between the United States and Indian tribes recognized by the United States. The history of the two allotments you reference in your letter identifying the approval of non use for personal convenience resource protection term grazing permit non-compliance and the 2013 memorandum of understanding highlights the complexity of working with a sovereign tribal nation who is also a term grazing permittee. So once that tribe also became the owner of a grazing lease, a grazing permittee, it made that relationship so complex they could not enforce the terms of the permit is what they said. Because of the sovereign to sovereign government relationship that exists with the tribe, they would not take enforcement action. And so this rule contemplates that it'll be the same types of groups. These, this rule is contemplating that tribes in the Grand Canyon Trust will go and have a heyday on our public land, enter into leases. Our, we have a track record of performance and their track record of performance is terrible. They did not comply with the lease. And we had no recourse to challenge that. The agency at the top said, we're not doing anything about it. Our hands are tied. We're not going to enforce anything against the tribe. So the BLM is setting themselves up to enter into contracts that they cannot uphold. And so we're basically giving away the public land estate and the control and the power of managing that to those who acquire these conservation leases. And that's a terrible outcome. The fact that there's no explanation for this is, again, reason this entire rule should be completely withdrawn. The, the BLM can't answer that question. We could put that in our public comment. How will you enforce the terms and conditions of it? We know the answer. We've already asked that. We found a smoking gun and we've asked that. And they said we can't. So if they don't have any new ideas on how they'll be able to do that, then this won't work. They can't do it. 
And so that's principle number two. It won't work. Principle number one is they don't have the authority to do it. Two, even if they tried, it won't work. We've seen all the players that they're contemplating will do this try, and they failed, and no way to fix it. So there's a third reason why this rule it won't work, and it's because it's also unnecessary. Uh, they're claiming the whole premise of this rule is that conservation isn't prioritized enough on public land. And this is what we've already talked about, but it's worth reiterating here. There are dozens, if you look at all the statutes and executive orders and all the other laws and rules that the BLM has to follow in any time they make any decision on public land, they have to go through the ringer when it comes to prioritizing the conservation needs of the public land. And if you were to look at who challenges public land decisions the most, it's always the conservation groups and the environmental lawyers that do it. And so you never get any change in management on BLM land without substantial input come from the conservation interests. And through and that'll happen through complying with the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Archaeological Resource Protection Act, the National Historic Preservation Act, the Antiquities Act, uh, the NEPA, the Administrative Procedure Act, FLIPMA, like, and then you have all these executive orders about um, protecting archaeological resources and managing off-road use and promoting environmental justice and equity. Like, they have executive order after executive order to follow. They have all of these laws and statutes to follow. And then they go through the process, they do their best to put in place a plan and, do, and change some sort of decision of how they're managing public lands. And, oh, and they also have, sorry, I mean, they have the grazing acts, they have the mining acts, and those are what allow grazing and mining on public land, but they always have reclamation provisions included in the act. If you're a mining company, you have to post reclamation bonds and things to restore the land back to what it was once you're done with your mining claim. And so it's all baked into the cake that conservation and protection of the resources is part of every decision. And then you always get these like final several years of process, which are the courts where you get judges come in with settlements and also enforce conservation values onto public land management decisions. And so to say that conservation is this like neglected facet of public land management, we've just completely forgotten about it is completely inaccurate. It's probably the most highly prioritized use on public land currently. And if you look across the landscape, I don't see that conservation is the biggest need. I think the biggest need on our public land is management, not conservation. And the, envir the environmental groups might say, oh, well, conservation is part of management. And so we need management to also conserve. And I'm saying they do, they do. What we don't have is active management. And, and this is turning into what I think is a theft of the natural resources of the American people uh, from their public lands. And we don't get to utilize those. We've become dependent on foreign nations for those. And we don't utilize a lot of our own resources here. And that leads me to the fourth issue is there are appear to be zero guarantees and zero protections that if this rule goes into effect, that it can't be used as a tool by foreign entities and foreign governments to interfere with our ability to utilize our own natural resources. I see no protection against whether 
the Chinese government or the Russian government or the Saudi Arabian government or the government of Norway, whoever it is that wants to influence the United States policy on how they manage its natural resources on public land, they could go fund some conservation-focused non-government organization, give them endless money so that they can go buy up conservation leases on public land, and they could micromanage our own access to our own natural resources. And there's nothing in the rule that seems to contemplate that that could even be a problem. Uh, I look at what's going on geopolitically around the world today, and if you're not factoring that in, then you're incredibly naive and reckless. All of the major conflicts that are going on around the world have to do with who's getting access to what natural resources. And if we allow geopolitical rivals to meddle with our public land management through influence, through a conservation lease program that has no basis in statute, then we're stupid. Everybody should unify against this. Uh, we're doing what we can to educate and mobilize the members of Blue Ribbon Coalition to oppose this and to look at the recreation aspects of this. If you are someone who recreates on public land, I can assure you as this starts to become implemented, you'll lose access to roads and trails, campsites and uh, recreation areas. This, Once the deep-pocketed environmental groups come in and start micromanaging public land through conservation leases. They are no, they are always the ones working to cut off our access. We know because we're in the court with them all constantly. It's what we do. You will lose access, period. I don't care what form of recreation you care about and what you like to do, you'll lose access. End of story. Uh, if you're a cattle grazing association, if you have grazing leases, if you're a miner, if you're a mining claim prospect or anything that, if you do any of that on public land, you will now have new partners helping you manage your operation and your business. And it'll be the environmental groups that are suing to stop you from being there in the first place. And so if you're not participating in this, then you're missing out on something that could be hugely destructive and problematic to your interests. And so we want people commenting on our action alert. It's recreation focus. If you focus on recreation land, you should use the BRC action alert. Simone and I are working on the letter that identifies the principles we've talked about here in this podcast. And if you want to be a signatory on that letter as one of the groups that's joining us in opposing this so that they see there's a lot of institutional pushback on the rule. Um, we want your help. We want your, we want your name on that letter. We are working, we have um, allies in local government who've reached out to us to learn about this bill. We've educated them about it or not the bill about this rule. And we think you'll see local governments rallying in opposition to this, local government leaders. And so we'll wait to see how they choose to approach that. And we, I think the ranchers have a unique perspective here and that they need to also be mobilized. And we'll be talking to some of our connections in the ranching industry and public land grazing industry and see, make sure they understand all the ramifications of this and that they're doing what they need to rally their uh, constituents and users. Uh, so that's the, uh, uh, again, another overview of what's going on here. I, this is one of those things I told Simone, there's like not enough cowbell that we can ring on this one. People need to be paying attention to this. It'll impact everything. Like a lot of times we get in fights where we're focusing on one trail or one trail system or one little area that impacts a, a tiny corner of the public land. This will affect it all everything managed by the BLM. And so this, wherever you like to enjoy public land, this affects you. 
It's everybody. Uh, and Simone, you've been digging into. I know we've been busy with a lot of things, but you finally had some time for you up. You got into the rule even in more depth than what we did during our first run over with the rule. Uh, what are some of the other things you're finding in addition to what yeah. I talked about just now? So just some nitty gritty and things that are concerning are the, so with proposed ACECs, uh, the BLM is going to start prioritizing designating ACECs. So they already, when they do management plans, they, they do recommended wilderness. Now they're going to be looking for recommended ACECs. Um, so, and those can be managed very, very restrictively. So they're going to start prioritizing ACECs, having so an alternative. So hold that thought. There might be some listeners that don't know all the government acronyms. What's <laughs> uh, an ACEC? Areas of critical environmental concern. So they are basically areas that they identify that need special management. Um, so basically just, a recommended wilderness. Exactly. It's just another well, way to so what's the difference? What's the difference between a wilderness, a recommended wilderness, a wilderness study area, and an ACEC? I mean, there's kind of not a whole lot of difference, but according to the BLM, ACECs can still allow motorized recreation, they claim, but we've seen it. Oh, oftentimes. well we should ACECs we should tell aren't. we should get that person at the BLM who claims that to tell that to the folks in Oregon that I'm working with that can't get to their cabins because they have to drive on a road that goes through an ACEC. Yeah, and the whole reason they say they their... can't is because it's in an ACEC. So if that's what, if we can use it for that, then weird, huh? Okay. Weird, right? How it's not any other, shocking any other <laughs> distinctions? Like how can the public know the difference between these designations? I like, we'd love to know. They can't, it's not like there's fences up or, or anything. It's just a way for the BLM to restrict use. Um, so ACECs are a concern. They use it to restrict all forms of uses on BLM land. Um, and so they'll start incorporating those even more into their management plans than they already do. So and do, are ACECs like the lease? Do they last like 10 years and then they get no, renewed or they're, they're like permanent or forever? Okay. Um, so what is this rule saying? I'm assuming if we're going to be making quasi-permanent changes to public land management, that there'd be a really robust public input process for that to make sure that all the public stakeholders are on board and that that's something this rule is going, is designed to protect? <laughs> Except quite the opposite. So oh, really? <laughs> originally, the BLM, they have to do a 60-day public comment period for any proposed ACECs. This rule actually gets rid of that. Um, they will not be required to list it on the federal register and seek out public comments on the proposed ACEC listings. So the BLM is going to give themselves even more power to just go in and make these designations as they see fit without any public feedback. Okay, so just locking out the public feedback yep. from public land. That sounds like a great idea. That I imagine that'll be really popular with the public. <laughs> Well, and so if, if that's uh, something you agree groups, with, it will be. <laughs> yeah, well, so if you agree that the public should have no say in how public land out. should be managed and that the BLM should just have carte blanche unilateral authority to just create designations that lock you out of it forever, then you should support this rule. <laughs> exactly. It, like, it, or if you're someone like me who's already not happy at all 
that Congress has completely offloaded all of this onto an agency. I think Congress should be the one making this rule, not the BLM. Because then if they make something stupid and that I don't like, I can vote them out. I, there's political accountability there. And instead, they give them administrative authority that they believe is broad that has like all these authorities that have been hiding there for 40 years that they, they just got out their magnifying glass and found it oh look i can make oh. conservation leases now oh, and seven. and by the way the public doesn't get to scrutinize what we're doing anymore we're not going to publish this in the public register we're not going to take public comment and and this will be just great for we're just everybody gonna do what we want when we feel like it and, and that's another thing with the conservation leases. So if a conservation lease is issued for mitigation, there's no limit on how long that lease will be given. And so, and then even if they do put a limit on it, um, it can just be transferred to somebody else. So these conservation leases, it's just another way to basically designate wilderness. I mean, same with the ACECs, we can do a lease and that can, as long as they're mitigating any negative impacts, then they can keep that lease for as long as they want. Oh, great. So they like to, they, in the rule, they say this is like a grazing lease or a mining lease. My understanding of grazing leases is they go up for 10-year term permit renewals every year. You have ranchers that think that that whole permitting scheme is illegal and contrary to all kinds of laws and statutes that have been on the books since the 1800s, and that's up to them to figure that all out in court. But they currently, if you're a grazing permittee, you go renew your permit every 10 years. If you're a mining operator, you have to actually go out and operate the mine. You can't just sit on a claim forever and you have to redo it. You have to get plans of operation. There's all these things where they can come in and, and on a term-by-term -term basis decide, do we want to keep doing this? Oh, but the conservation leases can go on indefinitely. Great. That's great. Great news. This is a really good idea. Mitigation. They do say that if it's for... Oh, I think if it was for um, enhancement, then it's up to 10 years. But if it's for mitigation, then there's no limit. Yeah. So that's and, very cool. And in some ways, I mean, to be fair, there might be some instances where that could work to the advantage of the system. Like they could say, well, we're going to build all these roads out here. And in order to build that, we're going to have a... A mitigation plan which involves letting this group conserve this resource they care about here so you get your roads you get your area you're going to mitigate maybe that's a good policy great congress should go introduce it and pass it and debate it and let all the groups go in and influence what that should look like it shouldn't be done through an administrative rule making process that has no statutory basis and so again okay so that what else are you finding uh, so, like you just said, where we can mitigate and offset uses, they also discuss offsetting with conservation leases um, if there's renewable energy projects. So, if the BLM were to go and approve a 200,000 acre solar let's farm, throw out, let's example. say no, let's use a wind farm, maybe like up let's, in Idaho somewhere. Like, like, who knows? Maybe I like don't know, lava range. Magic Valley. Yeah. Yeah. It, okay. <laughs> So if they go and approve that, a wind farm that's hundreds of thousands of acres, and that all gets locked up because of this now wind farm and renewable energy, now they can go and issue conservation leases to offset that. So now double the land is going to be locked up. Oh, good. And so every time we look at an alternative energy project, we have to anticipate that we have to double the size of 
loss of access for those of us who... It could even be yeah. triple. It could be quadruple. I mean, they have just this unchecked power of, oh, maybe the conservation lease needs to be three times the size of the wind farm to truly mitigate that and offset those. Okay. So just more unchecked power that we're seeing. Great. That's This is the kind of agency that... Land agencies just... Unchecked power land agencies, that is a great combination. We should have to do more of that. Um, so we need people to submit comments. We'll get a letter ready, too, that people can sign on. Um, for the proposed rule, people have until May 31st to submit comments to oppose this horrible rule. Okay. Well, so we'll be working with everybody to do that. Um, if you're part of these other user groups, uh, we'll have other ways for that to happen, watch for news from us on those. If But you can currently do an action alert through our basic action alert form that's focused on the recreation impact. But the more and more we see people coming out of the woodwork on this, we're realizing there's more need to organize the whole public land community against this. We will be doing that. And so that's what we've got for today. There's no more other crazy things you found digging into the rule there. I mean, we um, talked about some of them last week, but yeah, we could go into them from last week too, but I mean, now you can go listen to it and, it. <laughs> and you should subscribe to the podcast. Cause if we find more, we'll do another episode on this one. Like this is one we'll keep talking about until there's nothing left to talk about. Um, but the more we dig into it, the more we're finding this is just terrible, terrible, terrible. Share the and podcast so, to educate your friends. We need everybody opposing this. Okay, we'll go ahead and subscribe. We'll be back next week with more information on how our public land gets managed. And uh, thanks for tuning in.